Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest 30 minutes of your life. To my left, Gary Cannon. Wow, that's a big statement. To my right, Steve Byrne of Steve Byrne Live. Ladies Coming and at you. The Gentleman's Dojo. Oh, back again. We have, we have already, already recorded half a dozen of these episodes. Yeah, this is our good. seventh episode. Yeah. I want to talk about something a little special on today's episode. Seventh episode, and I think my Twitter followers have gone up by three. I've lost 17. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if there's any correlation. But I'd like to thank everybody here at All Things Comedy. They've treated us so well here. Car service from my apartment here to the studio. Okay, Gary, now I know <laughs> you're being an asshole. You're just the worst. Um, so here we are, seventh episode. Had some great guests on so far. Had Billy Gardell, which was great. Roy Wood Jr. Yep. Um, Jokers. Oh, Sal from the Impractical Jokers. Yeah. Uh, it's been fun. So thank you guys so much for hearing us out, listening to us. We're still getting our voice. We're still yep. getting our ducks in a row. We're still figuring this thing out. But we've been having a blast doing Loving it here it. at All Things Comedy. Everybody's been so supportive. Um, I just lost another follower. <laughs> I don't even know if that's possible. I'm down down 18 now. <laughs> so now I'm in the hole. Oh, shoot. I just saw it. Your mom unfollowed you. <laughs> uh, so today, we I, I want to ask you something, Gary. Sure. Now, you've been... I hate to use this term when I ask you this, but you've been a uh, a comedian, quote quote unquote comedian yeah. for h- how many years now? Uh, fifteen. F- no, seriously, that's about right. Yeah, 15, I started in really? ninety eight. Because you're fifty eight. <laughs> um, I'm the Phyllis Diller of audience warm up. Started late. <laughs> She's more attractive. Um, when uh, let me ask you, when did you sure. feel like you became a comedian? When did you feel like you hit that mark? Now, I asked Gardell this question last time, right. but, but when when was it that you felt like, oh, I'm a, I'm a comic now. I really you know, it's am funny. part of the crew. I knew that there's a lot of different pecking orders for how people feel or how people get their achievement of what they think is successful. What did you think what did you think the pinnacle of sex of success for <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the pinnacle of success was for comic going into it like when you just started what do you think when I get that I'll be well, I'll, I'll be a comic. Well, I remember when I started doing I'm sure it's had, it has <laughs> it definitely hasn't happened. As when I started doing stand up in San Francisco back in 1998. Great city by the way. Great city to, to start stand up. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar to New York. Mm-hmm. Um well, well not no, a little different, but um basically what happened was they would have a showcase every Sunday night at the Punchline. You always hung out there for about six months. Right. You'd hang out there. Eventually, you'd get on the Sunday night showcase and then hopefully start getting recognized, get more work on Sunday night, and then that would lead to hopefully weekend work. Mm-hmm. And I just remember put it off, put it off, put it off going there because I was just so intimidated and scared. And I just remember you know, walking up on a Sunday night where I'm like, I'm going to go in. I'm going to walk in. And I saw all the San Francisco comics hanging out front, smoking. And I remember I walked up. And I saw everybody hanging out. I turned around, went to my car, and I will never forget this. I went to go see the movie Private Parts with Howard Stern. Right. Because I didn't want to go home. I was living with my brother at the time because my brother knew that I was going down to crack the whip. I was going to start building something. And if I was home 10 minutes later, it would have been like, what the hell just happened? Right. So I went, saw the movie two hours later, then went back to where I was living with my brother. And I said, oh, it was a great night. Got to hang out. But I was just embarrassed. Right. And I just remember as the years went on and I started hanging out more in San Francisco, started going and felt like an active part of that community mm-hmm. and felt like kind of a big fish in a small pond. Like for me, that was a big deal. And even when I first moved to L.A., when I 
felt like this sounds so silly, but when I felt like the bartenders at the improv knew who I was, Eddie and uh, 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 the other guy's name, Dave, Eddie and Dave, right? When when I felt like when I walked into the improv and Eddie knew who I was, well, Eddie knew like, who you were and Dave who knew who you were because they're like, don't accept checks from him anymore. <laughs> Than my face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so like that for me, like those little things are like, you know what I mean? Like we're having your your picture um, with another comic uh, in the back hallway of the Comedy and Magic Club, you know, a club that I passed right. for years and years, you know, while trying to do stand up like th- like those little things were a big deal to me. You know what I mean? Now, what gave you the impetus to 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 even strike out and see if comedy was for you, which it isn't to keep going? Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I just knew that there was no plan B. I mean, I, you know, we, we, we talked about it on— But what you know, gave you the spark to say, oh, I, I, sh- I should try that? Um, well, you know, when I first—this is so funny. When I first moved to San Francisco— really. I first I moved bet to it San won't Francisco, be. I bet it won't laugh. Good. When I first moved to San Francisco, my brother and I were out at a restaurant, and there was a sign for a stand-up comedy class. And this was on a Sunday, and the and class was like on a Saturday. And what's it like teaching those now? Well, I did— <laughs> Don't be mad that I flunked you. Uh, <laughs> guy holds a lot of resentment because I gave him a B on the final. Uh, well, you just didn't know how to work a, a microphone stand. <laughs> you got to learn that up, righty, yeah, tighty, lefty, right, loosey. Right, of course, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I just remember there was this uh, stand-up comedy class that they were offering in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I called up a day later, and the guy said, you're in <laughs> You're in good shape. The group class is over with, but I teach classes privately. Oh. And it was one of those, right? Yeah. And so he sends me – this was before email. He sends me this packet of his headshot and all this stuff that he did, and he wrote to me. He said, you're the exact kind of student I'm looking for. And I was like, you know why? Because I have a checkbook. Like, I mean, how do you, <laughs> over the three minutes that you talked to me, you knew right. that. And I just remember – the funny thing about this guy that I worked with was you signed up for eight weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. You, you 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 booked him out for eight weeks, and I met with him every Wednesday night at like 6 o'clock. Right. And you would sit in his apartment. You'd go over your material. You'd stand up in front of a microphone, just him and you. And I remember at the four-week mark, he came over and said, uh, hey, I think this is going great. I would love to book you now for the next eight weeks. Like he was confident enough in my abilities. Like he was offering that olive branch that like, hey, I'm willing to work with you for another eight weeks. And oh, I good. Said, I said, I got to be honest with you. You know, money's tight. I don't know if I can now renew you for another eight weeks right. at the four-week mark. So at four weeks, he wanted you to be paid up for 12 weeks. And so I went back to my brother and I said, you know, I, it, this is 800 bucks for eight weeks. Yeah. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not – I'm broke, but I really want to lock in this guy. And my brother, having no attachment to L.A. or no attachment to Hollywood or comedy, whatever, said – Trust me, if you come up with another 800 bucks, they'll find time for you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're probably right. You yeah. know? And I remember another buddy of mine who did take his class and was canceling with him said uh, – the guy said to him, well, you have a cell phone, right? I mean, what's the priority here? Like this is how the guy was trying to hook line Really? Him. Yeah. Who yeah. is this guy? Do you remember uh, his name? Sure, Neil Lieberman. Yeah, and a lot of people took him. Yeah. I don't know anybody that ever took a class, though, that became a working comic. I think most comics I know, well, that's, yeah, case in point. I think most comics I know just did it. You just you do just it. You just went out just, there. Because that's the only way you can learn. You yeah. can't, nobody can, te- you just got to get up and trial by error, you know, just get up night after night, take your lumps. Yeah. And I remember Marin telling me years ago, when I first started in New York, he said it'd take you 10 years to find your voice. I was like, Pfft. Right. What's he think? And then I, I, I was like, at 12 years, I was like, oh, now I know. Yeah. It took me 12. But. Well, it's funny because when I first met 
comics in San Francisco that were working that were, you know, openers or they were hosting shows on the weekend. Mm-hmm. I remember they were doing it five, six years, and I remember thinking they didn't have any TV credits. I was like, boy, these people are assholes. Like, wait, wait till they get a load of me. You know what I mean? Right, And I right. just remember, you know, having to learn that. And, you know, it does take a long time. And the, anybody who says there's a shortcut or, you know, it's like the, the Billy Gardell thing. It's like, you know, there's a guy that did it the old-fashioned way. There was no YouTube channel. There was no, you know, putting something up on Vine and getting a viral hit to it. I mean, you know, that guy really went out there and worked it. And, I mean, I think when you and I started years ago, that's kind of just how we did it. I mean, yeah. I always ran a show in San Francisco. I always had my own shows going on. That way you could – Feed off of other people that had shows. Yeah, and I know. I, I don't know and, any comic that has ever produced a show. I don't know them to go on and, and work either. But I mean, <laughs> whatever. I, I don't want to get into the two things that you've done where I haven't seen success come from. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah. it's great doing this with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I got to say this though. I felt. I think every comic you think you know when you're starting off, you think, oh, when I get a when I get a, my first Tonight Show, I'm going to feel like a comic. But when I when I passed at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, that's when I felt like a comic because as a comic, you go there and you see the lineups, especially back sure. in the day where it's Geraldo, Patrice O'Neill, Colin Quinn, Jim Norton, and that's just like, you know, four or five. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and that doesn't even include the pop-ins because Seinfeld's popping in, right. Rock's popping in, Louis C.K., he wasn't Louis as we know him now. He'd be on the lineups. I mean, it was just these monster lineups, and then... To know that you were a part of that club, because once you get past the cellar too, you don't just get past. You're there every night. Right. So it's like a commitment. You're there seven days a week. And I remember just the first seven years of my life in stand-up comedy, I just lived in New York City. Uh, every night was at the cellar. New Year's Eve, Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. I was still doing spots because... It was almost like comedy was a girl that I couldn't get enough of. I couldn't wait to see her again the next night, and I just had to see her all the time. So when you're past at the cellar, then all those other clubs in New York just felt like dominoes. Right. Because I think you had the, you know, they just knew, oh, my God, this guy's competent. He must be doing something right if he passed there. And then I passed the strip like two days later, then stand up New York, and then they just all felt like dominoes. And that was because of the cellar. And that allotted me the opportunity to... Do five, six, seven, eight shows a night. That was not unheard of for me on a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever. It was just great. Um, and that's probably the only city, like unlike San Francisco, which has a great scene, but San Francisco, you could never have that opportunity of doing that many sets in a night. It's impossible. Yeah, I mean, you could literally come up with an idea and have a bit by the end of the night at 2.30 in the morning um, because you worked on it seven or eight times. But then but then, how did you get pa- – because I remember when I got past at the Improv here in L.A., which mm-hmm. was just awesome, but how did you get past at the Comedy Cellar? What was the – how the does that cellar, work? The Cellar – well, what it was is that I was uh, – you know, my second time on – on stage was at New York Comedy Club, and I walk off stage, and this guy hands me his card. He goes, you got to call me tomorrow. I go, okay, absolutely. He goes, I'm a manager. I'd love to work with you. I mean, this is my second time on stage. I'm like, fucking awesome, great. Call the guy the next day. He's like, you got to come meet me. I go to his office. His name's Roger Paul. He booked a lot of road work for a lot of comics uh, back in the day in New York City, so I met with him. He goes, "He goes, how long have you been doing? I go, that's my second time. He goes, second time? Jesus, we're we're working. We're working. Shake my hand. I, I go, great. I had a manager my second time. I'm He's working like, I love sausage party. Anyways, <laughs> I start working out of the gates, and I work the road. I was living in New York, but I started emceeing after like my 
30, you know, I was still doing bit, you know, my bringer shows on the weekends for two or three months in New York City. But when I wasn't working, I was I was emceeing somewhere in the tri-state area, you know, New York, Connecticut, Jersey, just like B rooms, C rooms. But I didn't care. I was I was making money and I was doing comedy. And um, so I, the first year or two in New York, I was working the road. So I built up kind of a road act, and then I went back, and I was like, I got to make it in this city. I keep leaving the city. Right. And I had friends that worked the cellar. So you need two recommendations, and you get five minutes on a Friday or Saturday night. I got it. I did it. Esty was like, welcome aboard. And it was like the greatest feeling in the world. Sure. And I pulled myself off the road, and for the next like six, seven years, I just stayed in New York City, just running the gauntlet of all those, of all those great clubs. And that's why... You know, at the time in 2003, this is a year before I moved to Los Angeles, a lot of comics were doing their CDs and selling them after the shows. And I thought, I'd like to do that, but I'd like to do something different. I'd like to show people what it's like to be a comic for one night in New York City. And so I thought, why don't I film it? I can make like a cool little documentary film and sell that after the shows and still have my material in it. But you see... All the different clubs. And I thought, well, what could be a fun premise? I thought, well, David Tell has the record for most shows in New York City in one night. He did 12. And okay. I thought, why don't I do 13 or bust? And knowing getting from cab to cab, club to club, it's impossible. I'll never break that record. I just won't do it. I'll, I'll get maybe 11 in. Okay. And, uh, and again, this was no you know race with a tell. It was just there was a benchmark that was done by him. So I know I'm a lot worse than to tell. I know that. Okay. But wait, can it, but can <laughs> yeah. can, can it? So you're saying 13 might not have even been physically possible. It didn't even seem like it could be done, even if you wanted to do it. Yeah. So I plotted it out. I right. talked to all the clubs and I said, "Here's what I'd like to do. Would you guys be on board for that? Can I come in here and film this with a film crew?" And they said, "Absolutely." So I started at six o'clock at night and was scheduled until 2.15 in the morning. My first set was at the comic strip, I believe. My last set was at the Comedy Cellar. And and I basically did this gauntlet, and I did I platted it out so that I have a 15-minute set, 15 minutes in a cab, 15-minute set, 15 in a cab. They were all 15. It had to be at least a minimum of 15 minutes. Yes. Okay. Because that's the... That's how long it would take longest from Upper East Side of Comic Strip to go down to the Comedy Village. Down because village, we both you know? know this. I mean, th- this is very difficult to do in a sense because we all know that shows don't start on time. If exactly. your set's supposed to be at 9, you may not get on until 9.10, which then screws up your next set after that. Yeah. I see that all the time. I mean, because when I, I, I host at Gotham in New York, and mm-hmm. so many times the people are out doing other sets, and I always hear they're going to be right back to do our show, and they're never on time. So there's that whole variable. That was, that was also the variable in thinking, I won't get the 13, because sometimes the clubs will start a little later. Sure. It's the weekend. These shows are packed. they got to funnel them in. Sometimes they – whatever. There's a thousand things that could go right. wrong. So I plot it all out, talk to the clubs, coordinate with them. I said, could you please be on time? I'll definitely be on time. Uh, and we had a roundtable as well throughout the course of it talking about our experiences in New York City, what it meant to be a comic. And Bill Burr did it. Robert Kelly and Dub Davidoff. So interspersed throughout all the different sets throughout the evening, there's a different subject about comedy that we would talk about. And so the documentary became 13 or bust. I went ahead, I did it, and lo and behold, that evening, everything worked out flawlessly. I couldn't believe it. it like, I, I made every single set. And it's so funny because there's, I God, I forget the name. I think it's the Ha Cafe in Times Square. Yeah, how Square. many clubs are, are involved with this? 
I think there were 10 or 11 clubs um, because some clubs you could do two sets in. And the Ha Cafe had a club right. upstairs and downstairs. Right. So it's so funny, again, to see the dynamic of doing a set downstairs and killing and then going upstairs and doing a set and bombing. Right. Literally the same set. Same beats, same notes, just blank faces. Do you care about the set or you're more about breaking the record? To me, it's like, well, that is very reflective of what you'd see in New York. Some sets, you just got it. Some sets are just awesome. You're like, why am I not, why do I not have my own show? Right. And then you go right next door and do another set, and you're like, this is why I don't have a show. I suck. Right. And so that gets in your head to go back and achieve what you had just done that set, two sets prior. You want to get back to that euphoric feeling of killing it or having fun or seeing the reaction from the audience. So- that was the gauntlet of the of of an evening in New York City, thirteen or bust. I did it. Oh my God, this is twelve years ago now. I can't believe it. It seems like yesterday, but I knew when I was doing it. I was like, this will be a time capsule as to my life prior to moving to Los Angeles, right? Because it was I, I did it just before I moved to LA in two thousand four. So two thousand three, I filmed this thing. Now let me say this. If you think my act sucks now, <laughs> if you do not like my act, if you think I'm a horrible, my act in 2003, you're going to think it's fucking garbage. But I was a young guy at the time. Right. I'm trying to find my voice. I'm trying everything out. And uh, it's a fun time capsule to go back to look at. So we talked to the fine folks here at All Things Comedy. Yeah. And with the release of uh, Champion... That is currently on Netflix. Uh, there's hard copies available you can get on Amazon, and with it comes a copy of 13 or Bust. But I was talking to these fine folks here, and we thought, why not release it on All Things Comedy so people can see this documentary called 13 or Bust? So in celebration of, of our six episodes being released, yep. our seventh episode now, the six were all bulk. It was like a premiere. It was like, here they all are. Now we're going to go once or twice a week. And seventh episode, moving forward, I wanted to take something that meant a lot to me um, and something that was very significant in my history of my own personal history of stand-up, going back to all those great years in New York City that I spent there, all those wonderful clubs, all the great comics I worked with are all kind of encapsulated in that one documentary, 13 or Bust, and I hope you could check it out. So it will be available at allthingscomedy.com. Uh, and I'll tweet about it. I'll Instagram it, Facebook it, let you guys know where the links are so you can go see it. But it's uh, it's about an hour, and uh, I, I think it's a fun little reflective piece to go back in time to see you know when my hairline was just a little lower. Was the camera crew at each club already set up, and then you would just jump in? Because it was kind of guerrilla style. As soon as we walked in, wow. the MC would introduce me. They would go plot up, post up on each side. And this is look, this is two thousand three. This is before like. Everybody had a camera sure. on their phone. I mean, guys came in with like a legit camera crew, and I was mic'd up with a lav. And right, you know, it wasn't like just some shitty thing where I had some awful camcorder. This was like professionally done, professionally edited. There's, you know, stock music along with it. But I look back on it now, even thinking, wow, I had Bill Burr and that, and Robert Kelly, who's on, you know, the Dennis Leary show, and Dove Davidoff, who's one of my favorites, just a great comic. And you think back to 2003 and see what everybody's accomplished since then. It's Pretty is a tell awesome. part of it at all? I don't think. No, I. You know, I didn't run into a tell at all. I never really even talked to him about it because I look. A tell's just the best. Right. He's literally one of the best comics working, and it doesn't. I. You know, 
what would be the conversation? Hey, I, I beat your. And it's just like, no, get the fuck out of my face. I'm a tell. <laughs> right. I, I just didn't know if he was. Because you know? Tell's such a, a huge New York guy yeah. that I would have thought maybe you would have run into him at some point doing shows there. Um, I mean, throughout the course of it, you see guys that are New York staples back in the day. But, uh, you know, like even when I went to the cellar, it's like I'm not going to bother Norton with this camera crew because, you know, he was somebody I revered, uh, as many of those guys did. They They taught me you know, how to be yourself, and they all had their very distinct voice. I mean, Norton couldn't be further away from myself or what he talks about, but, you know, I watch him, I was like, man, if I could get to the truth of my comedy one day like he does. Right. I mean, that. I mean, he's a warts and all kind of guy. He doesn't give a shit. It's all out on the table. When you're, when you're doing that final set, that 13th set, are yeah. you just glowing? You're just like, it's done? Yeah. It was, I remember feeling so happy and accomplished and proud to have done something like that, and I thought about we could have gone to the Ha Cafe in Times Square and gotten 14 in. Oh, wow. Because they had a show that went at 2 in the morning till 3.30. Wow. It was crazy. And I was like, damn it. And I live right up the street from it. So that kind of bummed me out. But it was, look, at the end of the day, it's one of those fun things you get to look back on and say, I got to do that. I, I mean, that's something I'll show my kids when they get a little older. And I'll, If I'll, they I'll, still want contact with you. Oh, anyways. Well. <laughs> well, we- Let me ask you something, though. A minute past yes. the, this is your time to shine. It is my time. But, but what yeah. did you do after celebrating 13 sets? I mean, what do you do? What's the, do you, you go have drinks? What do you, what do you- uh, Yeah, do you we had celebrate? some drinks. I had some drinks yeah. with the crew, and we had a blast, and they interviewed me for a little bit in my apartment building. I had this little, like, literally 700 feet square apartment in New York City, right in Hell's Kitchen, and I see that last shot during the credits where it says I could have done 14. I'm like, ah, that I, I could never do that again now. Like being 40, I look back at that time. It's like, I love New York. It's the greatest education in stand-up I could have gotten. Working with all those great people, night after night, getting to do those sets, the hurdles of following Chappelle or right. any one of those killers on any given night. You got to prove your mettle. But uh Boy, I look back at that. I don't think I could ever do 13 sets again in one night. I, I'd be run ragged. And that's still the record? From what I've heard from really? a lot of comics in New York City, that record still does hold, which is kind of cool. So, uh, I, you know, it, records are made to be broken. I know there's some young kid out there, hopefully, that will hear this or maybe even see the documentary that thinks, oh, I'm going to break that record. I'd, I'd love to see it, and I, I would wish kudos to that person because uh, it's a young man's game to, <laughs> to bang out all those sets. You look good for 40. Um, we Gary. are at the 20. <laughs> is again, doing my fucking act, you piece of shit. So, 20, so yeah, we, we always do this. We yeah. always have great sponsors. We always love it when people throw us some stuff, and today is no different. Uh, boy, we've been giving away some great stuff. Omaha Steaks, Fandango gift cards, mm -hmm. TVs. I, I mean, it's been great. Uh, today, one of my favorite Italian restaurants, I'm sure it was big in New York City, the Olive Garden. Hey, uh, anytime you, you, you come to New York City, you go to Times Square, you got to do the Olive Garden. I had it not too long ago, <laughs> and I, I got to tell you, it was really good. I did yeah. like it. Uh, we're going to do a $100 gift card. 100 bucks For the Olive Garden. That should take care of about four people. Or you. Or, or one of me. Yeah. So let's do the fourth caller. Four people uh, with a phrase that pays, and you're going to walk away with a hundred dollar Olive Garden gift card. It'll be great. Phrase that pays. You've done a great job with this, by the way. Thanks for heading this. So. I feel good about it. It's, I feel it's... good that we're giving back to our listeners. Yeah, it's like the one contribution you've made to the uh, to the show. What What's the most shows you've done in one night? 
<laughs> two, I think a Friday, Saturday. Well, you, know and, uh, you know what's so Cincinnati funny? Cincinnati Funny Bone. Because when we were when when I started doing stand up in San Francisco, we had two clubs that had showcases. One was Cobb's, one was the Punchline. Mm-hmm. Punchline was on Sunday nights where there was like 10, 12 comics. Cobb's did it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It was called an All Pro Showcase with fifteen comics. And I just remember as like a younger comic, and and you know as you were newer, you did the early spots. You did five minutes, seven minutes, and they bumped up the time is. Uh, you were more seasoned. But I just remember there were so many times going into these showcases where the first five guys were just bombing. And you're like, fuck this crowd. They don't know what they're doing. They don't you know, know what's going on. And I remember there was one night where the crowd was awful, mm-hmm. awful. And there was a comic who was visiting from Houston. I think her name was Laura House. Do you know who Laura House is? I don't know. Laura House came in. She went up number six. Mm-hmm. And just belted the fuck out of it. Yeah. And made us all look like amateurs and all made us look shitty. Mm-hmm. And literally just dumping on the fact. I Like, she brought it to a new level. And then you're like, oh, it's not the crowd. It's not, you know, there, there are those yeah. parameters a little bit where you're like, maybe it could be the But, like, she brought it to a new level. We were we were in Sacramento one time. and But, but, but that, that's true, though, something you said. It's like. It truly is never the crowd. Every now and then it's the crowd, but if you're a comic, if you consider yourself a headliner or you consider yourself a professional comedian, if you're going to go online and say I'm a comic, then your job is to crack the Rubik's Cube of that crowd and figure out how do I make them laugh. That's the challenge. It's not, oh, you're going to come to me. I'm going to make it happen. This is the material, guys. It's like if the material ain't working, go to older material. Go to the closing bits. Go to crowd work. Start improving. Your job when you're up there is to make them laugh. Right. That's a job. It it is interesting because we were up at the Sacramento Punchline one time, which, I mean, could have been rough sometimes. Mm -hmm. And me and a bunch of buddies did our sets and we bombed. And I just remember there was a guy up who was really experienced and felt like he'd been doing it a long time, Andrew Norelli. And I remember as we're leaving the club, he is killing, just killing. And he sees us leaving. He can see our, like, bodies walking across the bar. And literally he takes time, stops out from his set, and he's like, hey, guys, see you back in the city. And it's just like, motherfucker. Like, (laughs) just didn't care, like, was so confident. Yeah. Um, I just remember we were talking about moments of, like, feeling so good about being in this business. When I was up in San Francisco, I used to work with Brett Butler a lot. Her and I used to work together a lot. I just got teamed up with her. Right. And then when I moved to L.A., she I just moved to L.A., and she was working at the Ontario Improv. So I got a call from the improv booking office saying, hey, Brett Butler requested you. You're going to be featuring out in Ontario. Mm-hmm. I remember Matt Fulchron was opening. It was me and then Brett Butler. And I remember thinking, I don't have the time to do 25 minutes. Fulchron's a great comic. Still don't. <laughs> Still don't. Yeah. And after that weekend – I then was brought in to do the New Faces show at the Hollywood Improv. It was at 3 o'clock like on a Tuesday. Right. Matt Coleman was booking the show, and I just remember going up there at 3 in the afternoon and doing really well for what the environment was. And Coleman said at the end of the thing, hey, I'll let everybody know in the next couple of days. I remember he pulled me outside that day and said, hey, you're passed. And my very first gig at the Hollywood Improv was hosting for – the Drew Carey Improv Show on a Thursday oh, wow. night. Yeah, that was a big show back then. Huge. In the day. And it was huge. Yeah, I remember he used to host me all the time for those Thursday shows. Oh, that's great. And I remember walking in there, and it was all young kids from UCLA and like all this stuff, feeling so intimidated because back then Thursday was the night to hang out at the Improv. Yeah, and I just remember getting those gigs and walking in with like a pit in your stomach, seeing the crowd. Oh, sold out, jammed, sold out. You're part of it. Yeah, you go on stage. Yeah, non Steve yeah. Burn show, and then like you see a crowd what that's that? so busy. Yeah, we call you non-special event. 
Okay. That's what your name is. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, there draw are those, the curtains burn. There are <laughs> the worst. There are those moments where you do feel like that you're part of it. You're part of the cog that's, you know, and, and, and we forget as comics too, when we're looking out at the audience before the show starts, like people are there eating dinner, they've ordered drinks, like they have no idea what's about to happen in the next hour and a half. Like it, it really is kind of like, I love seeing people walking into the club because they have no idea what's about to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, those people that have no idea what's going to go on, it's like they go in, they're hyped up, they just ate dinner, they're in a good mood, they had a few drinks, they say, here comes Gary Cannon, it's just like, well, we got to wait for the next guy. <laughs> and he's going to tell us what we can afford. I mean, that's the beauty of the whole Gary, thing. You, you know, know what I mean? He's going to tell us, thank he's you for- He's doing my act, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, when I say act, I have one. Just so we know. Do, what do you consider? You? Is it an act? Listen, I, I know my it? specialty. I know my specialty is 15 minutes in and out. Like, that's my thing. And I'm okay with it. I'm okay with, with knowing. You have in to know. Out. I always love this. And you were talking about doing a lot of road gigs when you were in New York City. Yeah. When I was in San Francisco, so many comics would say, I'm going to take this road gig in Oregon for 100 bucks." Yeah. And these people probably had 15 minutes of material. Yeah. Maybe less. And it'd be like, hey, don't you have to fill a half an hour? And their whole thing was, I'll just do crowd work. Like, oh yeah, yeah. They That's really, the... <laughs> they really don't realize that there's this bigger picture of making it look artificial. Like, it, yeah, there, there's more to it than that. Yeah, material. Which yeah, you still haven't worked on. You were talking about crazy. The, you were talking about Gary. All right, we gotta go. We're at the 29 minute mark. Here we go. Uh, 13 or bust. It is available at All Things Comedy. Watch it for free. If you're a comedy yep. fan, I think you'll enjoy it. I apologize for the material. I've tried hard. I've not seen it. I'm excited. After to see the it. last three. Uh, specials to make up for the material in that. Um, I'm excited to see it. But hey, it's a great time capsule. It's a great a great way to see a comedian jumping from club to club to club. All the different clubs, all the different comics along the way. Keep in touch. All things comedy. All underscore things underscore comedy. Instagram. All things comedy. At Twitter. Canon Gary, comedy. That's yeah. com- it's an insult to the industry. <laughs> uh, keep in touch it's with, with me. K. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everything is Steve Byrne Live. The page, the webpage, Steve Byrne Live. We're hitting the road together. We're touring. See yeah, all the tour dates tons of stuff at SteveByrneLive.com. Yep. On behalf of Steve Byrne, on behalf of Gary Cannon, all on behalf of All Comedy, Things Comedy, on behalf of everybody, so nice on behalf of America. Yeah. 13 or Bust, check it out. Champion is on Netflix. We'll see you.